Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. It had to do with the fact that I was not religious. I was born and raised in the South. My dad was a hardened uh, surgeon, military medic from World War II Pacific Theater. I gather that he was just kind of turned off by religion. So I grew up free of it. Had no idea that anybody took the notion of an afterlife seriously until I was 18 years old and read it in Plato my first year. Uh, at the University of Virginia mm-hmm. as, and uh, immediately decided to major in philosophy. And uh, at the end of Plato's Republic, there's this story about a man who was believed dead and resuscitated. And uh, Plato obviously took it seriously. The man told of this amazing experience. Three years later, I met Dr. George Ritchie, who was a professor of psychiatry at University of Virginia. And I uh, heard his story of the same thing, close call with death. Subsequently to that, through a PhD in philosophy and an MD and a residency in psychiatry, career as a forensic psychiatrist, I uh, have had the wonderful privilege, as it is, Alex, of interviewing literally thousands of people from all over the world who went to the brink of death and came back and had these amazing stories. Well, you know, since I was 18 when I started and I was 77, I'm 77 now, it's kind of hard to, you know, unwind all those things. But I mean, it's obviously the people I've interviewed who had near-death experiences have changed my life. I, um, you know, I am a logician tried and tried. I just love critical thinking and logic. I was a professor of logic before I went to medical school. And um uh, you know, in reality, in the real world, uh, proof of life after death in 2022, that's just not possible. There's very real logical reasons that were stated very well by David Hume, the great skeptic, and, and Plato himself and so on. Um, and, and with the knowledge that, that it's, it's not currently possible to draw up logical inference on it. I will confess to you, uh, nonetheless, Alex, that I have just sort of given up. I don't know what else to say except that to my utter astonishment, because it's still very counterintuitive to me, I think that um, there is life after death. But not only that, I think that we're in a position now to have entirely new ways of looking at this um, that will, I think, um, re- result in, uh, you know, reproducible, um, uh, but rather startling observations uh, about how to think about this. So I think we're on the track. And, um, and at the same time, like, I just give up. I just, 
you know, I, you know, I never fell for that thing about oxygen deprivation to the brain right. being behind this because um, one of my own medical school professors told me that she had an identical experience of leaving her body and seeing this light and so on in the presence of her dying mother uh, when she herself was resuscitating her mother, not not herself ill or injured. And subsequently that I've, I've talked to the hundreds of people for sure who, who um, were there at the death of someone else and during someone else's death, the bystanders themselves have the same experience of leaving their body going upward toward a light. Um, and a number of cases I have actually empathically co-living the dying individuals holographic life review mm -hmm. so since the bystanders are not ill or injured it you know something else is going on rather than oxygen deprivation to the brain two things number one i am not a parapsychologist i mean i and this is not a personal criticism i love i have dear friends who are parapsychologists they're just the sweetest people and for that reason many times kind of naive I mean, for somebody to say in 2022 that the question of life after death can be a scientific question, well, that make, make, pe make people feel good for a moment because people love the word science even, they, even when they don't know what it is, right? Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, parapsychology is a pseudoscience. And in my opinion, uh, creating a sort, it's a, there's a prof issue, issue of professional ethics involved in it because to tell people that there's evidence or proof of life after death well that's irresponsible suppose for example that people who are grieving get comforted because of that and then some while later they hear that that work was shown to be faulted as all of it is um, then you know it's a professional ethics problem but people have the, you know, I think that there are ways where people can find out this for themselves now. They don't have to worry about somebody with a doctoral degree behind their name telling them it. There are ways to look into it for yourself. You see, by 1974, when I wrote that book, uh, the, the cardiopulmonary resuscitation had developed to such a pitch that uh, I just, I was fortunate to come along uh, at a time where I had, I just, there were just many cases of it, right? So I was the, because of the CPR, whereas going back even 200 years, all these things occurred or a thousand years, but it was very unusual, you see, a thousand years ago to survive a close call with death but now we have means of bringing people back so that's why my um my book got all the attention plus as i've said you know i just was very cautious in there and not out of modesty but out of realism that you got to be very careful in how you evaluate things like this i mean it, it's not easy to give evidence or proof of life after death we don't even know what we're talking about yet but but i'm not trying to talk this subject down because i i say that we're now on the verge of whole new developments in it but it's not going to come from parapsychology which is pseudoscience when i heard dr george ritchie uh, 
talk about his experience, which took place when he was a recruit in the army in late December 1943 in Camp Barkley, Texas. George was um, a 20-year-old from Richmond, Virginia, who joined the army. And uh, he told me about how he had a cardiac arrest, which lasted at least nine minutes. I talked to the physician years later, Dr. Francie, who, who was involved. He said, I just, he said, it's the most amazing thing I've heard of in my decades of practice in medicine, but I, I can't, you know, it happened. And, um, and George was just such an absolutely great guy. My parents, by the way, were from Porterdale, Georgia. George from Richmond, Virginia, after I had already written and published my book, I found out that my dad was right there in Camp Parkley, Texas, right where that happened. And I was there in utero because mom and dad had moved from Porterdale, <laughs> Georgia to Camp Parkley, Texas. So my dad could go to officer's candidate school. Wow. Uh, he, he, they went there in early September 43. I was conceived in late September 43. George's experience was around the 24th. And my mom and dad moved away from Camp Barkley December 29th, 1943. So I was there in utero when this thing happened. <laughs> you know, what people say um, is, um, uh, oh, this is wishful thinking, right? Well, I know in my life many, many wonderful people, including my best friend of life, Milton Friedman, that not the economist, but the presidential speechwriter, mm -hmm. who didn't want there to be life after death. I mean, it's wishful fulfillment. It's just it, whether it, it doesn't matter whether people wish or don't wish this to be, it's, it is or it isn't, regardless of that. But where I have come to this in reflection, Alex, is that uh, what is your personal identity? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And that's a big philosophical question. Plato said it was the immaterial soul. Locke said it was our memories. David Hume said, I can't find anything in there other than the temporary impressions. Um, so it's a big, but where I think, and I bet you probably think this way too, I think that a human life is a story, right? And even your consciousness is, is narrative directed. When some new event happens to you in life, what do you do? You, your mind automatically weaves it into uh, their life story. And you as a filmmaker don't know, what is it? The Kulnikov effect, mm -hmm. right? If you, if you put any two random images in a sequence, people Correct. are automatically gonna build a narrative. So what I think is this thing we're in, is the hyper future version of what you guys do out there in Hollywood, in my opinion. I think this is the movies. 
and the whole setup of life, you may say, well, that's a simple logical fallacy, because what you're doing is you're taking one aspect of the human life, namely the theater, and projecting it out as a model for a whole. And I understand that fallacy, which uh, Aristotle identified. However, what I think is it happened the other way around. I think the reason why we, reason we have the theater is that just as I learned when in my geriatric psychiatry career, I got to talk to some eminent celebrity, knowledgeable, refined, reflective people who just would go back and say, you know, Raymond, the older I get, the more the impression, an uncanny impression develops. When I look back at my life, that it's been a story or a movie or a novel or a play or whatever term they used. And I think that's how the theater, I mean, you know, we all know the story, Pisistratus there in Athens and the, mm -hmm. the, the chorus that had been going on for a long, long time. And then for reasons unknown, Thespis steps forward. It creates a sensation. The Greeks, all it's all about competition, right? I think the Olympic Games, let's have a contest. Mm -hmm. Like first mm -hmm. winner, Aeschylus. Second winner, Sophocles. Third mm -hmm. winner, um, Euripides. In 50 years, the theater became a profession. So what I'm getting at is, I think this thing that we're in is kind of like a theater. And the way I gather is, it's like, that's what people naturally come to as they grow older, that this has been a kind of script or a story. And then as I gather, not, you know, from my own way, I put this together, I gather that you, we die, and then we go through some incomprehensible process. And then we're back on another story. As both of my kids have, assured me i don't you know i mean in terms of, i i learned this from my two kids because mm -hmm. <laughs> you know they never went to church and sure. my my wife and i don't talk about life after death we talk about the phone bill was for dinner the movies you know so but they both you know just independently recalled where they were before they came to us and we adopted both of them at birth so i watched wow. this unfold like I often ask people, I've asked people this for about 10 years, I've been observing this. I ask, and well, I'm in an, I have an audience. I, I say, let's suppose that you were diagnosed with a terrible infection that required that you be isolated all by yourself on a desert island for 10 years. And they could, they could, they would send you over there in a cargo plane with plenty of room for all the food and water and medicine they're gonna need for 10 years. But in addition, there's some extra room so they can send a DVD player and let's say 10,000 DVDs. Yeah. And so what I ask, ask people under that circumstance is, would you choose all comedies? And only three people have only said that they would, and they had a little goofy look in their eyes, if you ask me, Alex. <laughs> but what I'm getting at is then I say, well, would you, would you take along some tragedies too? And they, well, sure, sure. And I say, well, when you were all by yourself on that desert island watching that tragedy, would you be crying? And they say, well, sure, because that's the experience of tragedy. 
And I think this is the setup we're in now, right? It's like, it's like, I kind of, the way I've put it together, it's, um, you know, Plato, by this way, and following on with what you're saying, in his old age, his last book was The Laws, and in it, he says, we are God's toys. He, he began it by saying, you know, really, if you think about it for just as you think about it, he said, there's not much to a human life. It's not very important. He said, and we are God's toys. And he said, and you're the best way of dealing with this life is just sort of play at it, right? And so going back to the desert island story, I mean, yeah, I see people all the time standing in line for a roller coaster, for example, with my daughter, <laughs> who was not me, I'm standing in line with her. It's people standing in line for two hours to get on a roller coaster, knowing full well that when they're upside down at 90 miles an hour, they won't want to be there. And I think life <laughs> is kind of that way. Is uh, I mean, you know, I've been through some gosh awful terrible things. You mentioned I've just been a terrible illness lately. And, uh, you know, just a month I was feeling terrible. And um, so the thing is that when we're in it, we might be kicking and screaming and protesting, even though in a larger sense, we might have set it up. You chose. To do, you see, as a physician, Alex, is that every illness is a state of, is an altered state of consciousness. Think about it. Every one of them, even having a cold, your, your consciousness goes to the back of your throat. Right? See it from there. Every illness has its own peculiar alterations in consciousness. So illnesses can be a learning experience too. So, um, you know, while we're in here, it's just like the movie, too. I mean, I'm not much on horror movies. Mm -hmm. I'll go there with my daughter and hold my hands over my eyes. But, you know, it's um, you choose to go see a horror movie. Uh, yeah, like I said, I, I've not been religious. I'd never been exposed to the idea of reincarnation. And, mm -hmm. uh, but it came up by my kids brought it up. <laughs> you know, I... And uh, I mean, it looks, I, I, well, for one thing, they told me just what they told me was true, but it was before they were born. Like uh, Carter um, was just out of nowhere. He, he was said, uh, dad, he was watching, we were watching the, what turned out to be the National Geographic Channel. I was flipping through the channels and i flipped through the national geographic channel mm -hmm. carter became very animated dad dad that's my village back of it's a documentary on village life in china I said yeah that's my village where i was with my other mommy and daddy and my other brothers and sisters before i came and i was sure and then as though to orient me he said yeah and then i was up in the trees looking at you and mommy lying in the grass. And I knew exactly what he was talking about because we had we were in Greece um, and uh, we were exhausted from the plane ride and the attendant at the archeological site said, just go lie down in the grass and 
taken that. There was nobody else there, but these big trees. We were talking about adopting a baby. 